Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, welcome back to the Weight of Fatherhood podcast. This is your host, Brian Phillips. I'm joined today by Jake McAtee. Uh, Jake works for Canon Press in Moscow, Idaho. And he is, uh, he does a lot of things for Canon Press, actually. He's the, the producer for the Amazon Prime series, Man Rampant. He's the host of the Canon Calls podcast. And recently, Jake, you also completed a, a, a literature guide to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was published by Canon Press as well. So, Jake, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Ryan, thanks for having me, dude. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, before we jump in, um, just so everyone knows, we're going to try to focus in a bit on Frankenstein in okay. a little bit, but um, I want to start off by letting you kind of elaborate on the different things that you do for Canon. Um, let's start with the Amazon series, because that's, that's yeah. a deal, right? Everybody, even if you yeah. haven't heard of Canon Press, everyone knows Amazon, right? Everybody so, has Amazon. Maybe. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So what is Man Rampant? And, and I think you're probably going to have to explain that title to us a little bit too. <laughs> Man Rampant, I believe, was a title decided on during a, a Canon lunch. Like on Fridays, we used to do it every week. On Fridays, uh, all the employees kind of get together, Canon buys us lunch, and we sort of just all stuff into the kitchen. And uh, those are the great conversations and vision casting for all kinds of crazy things. So basically, it was we were thinking a Chestertonian. Uh, kind of ideal with well, have you ever seen the man rampant you know what i mean just like the guy at the duke's out and yeah. just going at it so essentially i think it was 2016 17 we originally started okay. filming we wanted a talk show with doug where guests would come on and i'm hoping like with this podcast where i'm not a father but i'm on the way to fatherhood podcast Right. Um, similarly, you can be not a man and come on the Man Rampant show. The essential through line is that whatever conversation, the topics that we're discussing, that more often than not today, it takes a certain level of courage to have an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Especially on the on the more unpopular ones. So it was essentially, you know, we we started out with Joe Rigney's episode, uh, "The Sin of Empathy," which is just mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. not a cool it's not a cool take empathy is in right now so it's not it's not the uh that was not it but essentially uh that was a great one i thought honestly the topic itself defined a lot for the series and yeah. uh we're into season two now season two about to drop next month yeah and and that that opening episode i i, I saw that where it's distinguishing between empathy and sympathy right which is which seems like such a subtle difference but it's uh, it's a big difference right um yep uh sympathy as in seeing another's pain and you know uh, feeling sorry for them and helping them helping them out of it right yeah uh, right work. the there's two authors really recommended in the episode uh which were edwin friedman he wrote the failure of nerve i highly recommend that to everyone and Rene Girard's work. And essentially, the difference being empathy largely is the call for you. Uh, like if somebody's, you know, drowning over there is for you to essentially to assume that you can pick them up and save them is sort of like, you know, not cool, jarring to the senses uh, or jarring at least to sensibilities of like, who the heck do you think you are? You know, how much better to just like be there with them in this time of pain and sorrow? Anyway, I thought uh, it was, it's a series we're super excited about. And like I said, season two, we worked super hard during COVID to get it out. You mentioned it was on Amazon, and I believe you can f- still find season one on Amazon, but I don't think it will, season two will be there. 
So season two has been uploading to Amazon for like seven months. That's, oh. that's an exaggeration. Okay. I think we finished and we're started uploading in May. So, okay. Um, I don't think it'll be on Amazon again, but Canon will come through or this is coming out in November. So everybody should already know Amazon t- season two of man rampant is on the Canon press app. She can find, okay. and it's free for the month of November. Uh, and then it'll move to a subscription okay. base after that. So well, we'll talk, we'll talk more about that in Please. a little, cause that's one of the yeah, things yeah, yeah. about is what, what you've got coming out, but that's, that's yes. exciting. Okay. So, um, now another way you guys are addressing important ideas, which, you know, man rampant is one way that you're doing that, of course, kind of a talk show sort of setting. Um, but you're doing that through literature guides as well. And yes. Those guides originally, I think it was the Canon classics worldview guide series. Um, yeah. And now they're being combined in with kind of one, one volume where you'll have the, the classic work of literature and these attached guides. to attached to the guides. Yeah. 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 So, so tell us a little bit about that series. Um, kind of some background context before we jump into what, what you've contributed to that. Yeah, man. I love the Canon classics. I mean, I like reading. I like literature. That's a big part of who Canon is also. And we're also into the classical model for schooling. So classical Christian education, which means you're reading a ton of classics growing up and that also happens in college. Like here we have New St. Andrews. You're going to read a ton of classics. Um, and classics are not, they're popular. And I wasn't at Twain that said, you know, it's a classic if you want to have read it, but not to read it. I think so. Essentially we started the Canon classics, uh, idea with, we want to attach guides to them. We don't want, uh, we, we, there's a balance where it's like classics should be, they're a part of our heritage and we want to appreciate them as such. They're not this, they're not like our gods. Like we don't love the, the classics are not perfect, right. uh, but they are part of our history. They're part of our heritage. And so you should get to know them as such. Like, Oh, Hey, there's weird uncle Joe and Mary Shelley, who was like nuts. Yeah. Uh, look at what she did and uh, like find out their contributions. How do you consider them as a Christian? You know, you don't want to sort of hang up, you know, the minute you get immersed in a work, it's like you still want to think critically about it. You still want to think like a Christian about it. You don't want to be like loving and, you know, enjoying things that God's like, hey, that's like not, that's not awesome, but you can still. So essentially, long story short, we made guides that we think are helpful to get into the bottom of works. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's, that's part of a, a bigger discussion that I know classical educators have had for a long time and are continuing to have. So, um, how do you, how do you decide what, what books are included in that, that series? So what, what constitutes <laughs> a classic or what should constitute yeah. a classic? And, and uh, for uh, this might just be one man's opinion, right? Um, but well, <laughs> I'll say for us, it was like the top 100 classics sold on Amazon. So uh, just from a okay. business standpoint, which ones are people buying? And not only just a business, it is a business move, but also you're mm-hmm. thinking like, if we're going to go down a rabbit hole of niche content that no one's reading, it's or however beneficial that might be, no one's reading it. So it's not actually helpful. So for us, we I think we picked the top 100 Amazon classics, essentially. Whatever's in the classic department. We're not finished. I think we're just under 50. It's sort of, we've got so many things going, but it's still like, it's still something we're passionate about. It's just that plate is still, we threw it in the air and it's slowly coming down. But um, if you wanted a very professional answer in terms of what I deem a classic, <laughs> that's not just on the Amazon top 100. I don't know that I have a good one other than I think it probably matters in terms of the function they played in history. You know, here's a, here's essentially a signpost for this moment in time. Yeah. Here's essentially like a work which illustrates all of, you know, what's happening at the moment. What, what do people think about X or Y? And you can see that and how this character acts in this moment. You know, so in terms of Frankenstein, all, you know, truth be told, it's not a book I super enjoy. It's not a book that I 
find myself recommending to people like, man, you ought to read Frankenstein because of this or that virtue. Um, but it does actually, it does represent, you know, here's sort of where the romantic, here's the romantic moment. Uh, here's how Mary Shelley was responding to that romantic moment. You know, a lot of people think she was celebrating it. I think she's a lot more critical of it. So anyway, I guess in that sense, something like, for example, the one I did, Frankenstein, this is a classic work because it just is sort of a giant billboard for that moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and just so people know, I, I wrote, I did a couple of these guides for Canon one was uh, the first one I did was the meditations of Marcus Aurelius that I think, um, and then the second was the Inferno by Dante. And both of those kind of fit the, that historic definition of a classic, right? It stands the test of time. It rewards you with every return. You know, it, it, um, so it has a lot more history behind it and it's, it's a lot easier to label something as a classic right? When it's been around for half a millennia or, or longer, right? You know, I mean, uh, let's see the fashion. It's a, it's a classic. Yeah. The, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, I mean, it's got 1800 years behind it. Uh, right. Dante has 1500 years or 1500, 500 years behind it. So it's easy to label something a classic when it's got all of that time and it's, and it stood the test of time as being you know, worth reading and worth rereading and it rewards you when you go back to it. But it is like the closer it gets to us, the closer it gets to our own time, that becomes more difficult to determine. Right. So, yeah, I think so. And especially in that, in terms of like Christians, you know, I've had you on my podcast, Canon Calls to talk about those guides in particular. Right. And you know, there's this, there's, there's also a trend I think of that I mentioned where like people think classics are everything or like these, yeah. this moment is going to change you forever where you don't necessarily want to fall into that. Although that's why I li- I actually like the metaphor in terms of heritage where it's, it, you know, Christians are commanded to love their father and their mother. And I think Westminster kicks that out to your heritage. Um, whether that's actual familial heritage or your cultural heritage. So I think that metaphor actually cuts through anything that's trying to make something too big of a deal in terms of like binding your conscience to read it or something like that. But um, it also fits in things like, well, I think, you know, Mary Shelley is not a great historical figure in the sense that like, hey, go be like Mary Shelley or go be like her work. (laughs) <laughs> Whereas like yours, you know, Dante, that's awesome. I mean, Dante, right. you want to like get as much out of Dante as you possibly can or, yeah. Yeah. or what have you. So anyway, I think the heritage line works a lot better than yeah. like, is this a classic work that people, a bunch of people like? Right. Yeah. It's, it's a bit tricky. I mean, I know a lot of people talk about that even with um, works like the, the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. Is this going to be considered a classic way past our time? And I don't know. It, it seems a bit arbitrary. You know, I, I don't know where the cutoff line is. Like how much time is enough time to determine whether this is a classic that should be read generations from now or not. But Frankenstein, written by Mary Shelley in, in 1818, or published in 1818, yeah. you said was, was within that period of the Romantics. Um, yeah. So it, in a sense, it, you know, it's, it's a couple hundred years ago, Yep. Um, regardless of when that arbitrary kind of cutoff is, what is it about Frankenstein that you think makes it an important book for us to read? Even, even if you don't, um, like I've, I've read Frankenstein, uh, at, at least a couple of times, you know, I yeah, believe right. it a few times. um, and even though I wouldn't put it in the same category by any means, just for our listeners. So, you know, um, I, I would, I would, it's not Hamlet. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's okay, Brian, you can tell everybody you love, you love Frankenstein. We get it. Yeah. And it's not, it's not, it's not the Odyssey, but, yeah. but it's still, it's a good book and it's worth reading. So what is it in your opinion? What is it about that story that makes it a, a book worth reading and remembering? Yeah. There's a couple of things that I have found fascinating about Frankenstein and it has nothing to do with the work. So maybe instead of like cutting off the branch of like my 
financial beneficiaries of like, don't, I don't know that it's worth reading. Uh, you should at least buy my guide. How about that? I see. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So let's differentiate then. Right? Yeah. So here's what I think about is fascinating about Frankenstein. It's a, it's a very fascinating cultural moment. So Mary Shelley's mom is Mary Wollstonecraft, who is, a lot of people see as the first feminist. And she's got a fascinatingly tragic life where she was all involved with, um, involved with, she, she at least was a, uh, advocate for the revolutionary war or the French revolution, sorry, revolutionary war, the French revolution. Um, there's a story I included in my thing of like, uh, she was a journalist and at one point she was walking the streets, uh, in Paris and she fell and slipped and she kind of thought it was water or whatever, not a big deal. And then she found out it was blood and, you know, covered in blood and totally messed with her, but not enough to think like, Hey, the revolution might be not a great idea. So anyway, she was sort of in the who's who of the, of that whole world. She, she would go on to have a very influential group of friends, which included people like Thomas Paine. It included people like Benjamin Franklin and William Godwin, who would eventually be her husband, who's Mary's dad and Aaron Burr of all people. Like when he came back over after all of his American, you know, crazy stories he uh fell on hard times and the, they took care of him so it's a very fascinating moment with all this mary uh mary wollstonecraft died giving birth to mary shelley and she was left with her father william godwin who was also sort of an anarchist mm-hmm. wrote a ton of academic treatises and uh when he remarried she took on a few more siblings and what's <laughs> another fascinating aspect to her is her I now I'm forgetting if they got married, but Percy Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, the right, poet, right, right, right. wrote some good ones, was obsessed with the writings of her father. And he would just write these letters trying to get in, which like Godwin was used to sort of uh fanboys and stuff, but this guy was persistent and he was persistent. Assistant, and then he also subtly let him know that he has a ton of money, which Godwin did not have. And so <laughs> he essentially came to the show, well, to the Godwin household. And under the guise of like, all I will, I will sort of, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? <laughs> I will tutor your kids and oh, okay. I will also pay your bills if I can just like be around. And Percy just, you know, that was a heck of a deal. Not Percy, sorry, I, that I for William. Your benefactor. Yes. Yeah. And for Godwin, I was like, sweet. I've never had like a fanboy who would also pay my bills. So yeah. he was over the moon about it. So Percy leaves his uh pregnant wife and comes to the comes to the Godwin household. Okay. And you you, you know to mention how classy this story was. Oh, it's super unclassy. Sorry, is this a family show? It was. Okay. <laughs> I haven't even got to the unclassy parts. No, go ahead. Um, but so, so essentially, William Godwin is you know on record as was Mary as as was Mary Wollstonecraft of sort of you know revolutionizing the moral order, uh, revolutionizing love and everything else. Well, soon you know he made his bed in print, which uh, for authors is sort of. Um, like God's joke on them because essentially Percy comes, tutors them, runs, uh, eventually seduces his daughter, Mary Shelley. And then they run away with her little sister, Claire to they, she ends up having one of his kids who dies early. There's the famous scene after, after that, um, death, they go to, they go to hang out with Lord Byron. I don't know if anybody knows listening about Lord Byron, but he was, you know, you know, the, uh, playboy of his time, he would definitely be leading the charts on TikTok today. <laughs> and they, they go do the scary thing. Like everybody knows about Frankenstein, the scary, they were all at a house told yeah, scary for, for, stories for, for those. Yeah, go ahead. That's what I was going to say for those who yeah, so, background, go ahead and tell that. Yeah. So now the fun part, but now that you know, all of like how they ended up at a house, they, they go and meet with Lord Byron and John Polidori. A quick note on John Polidori is he eventually, he was the first vampire story, story guy. So he's the guy that came up with that and it was at the house. So this house is responsible for all kinds of devious cultural, you know, detritus that we have today. So basically they all have this idea one night. It's Claire, 
who's Mary's little sister, Mary, John Polidori, Lord Byron, and Percy Shelley to tell ghost stories, which they were obsessed with. They were obsessed with like being scared. They were obsessed with like that that rush. And I'll stay euphemistic because it's a kid's show. I'm gonna I'm gonna stay way above. It wasn't like this isn't like clean fun like on Nickelodeon. This wasn't like scary stories after dark. So it's not like uh, they, this isn't their own. It's not goosebumps. No, no, no. It was like like there are sex the sexual nature is like very infused in the whole in the whole gambit. Right. But essentially they just start telling stories and the story that Mary told she ended up uh wanting to complete, which was which became Frankenstein. And like I said, John Paul Dory did one, which eventually you know, would flesh out as a vampire and then uh, forget the other guy, Dracula guy from the Dracula guy got his idea from John Polidori. Yeah. Yeah. So I said this on my podcast when I talked about it, but it was a, there's a funny thing with Lord Byron who um, is doing all kinds of like outrageous sexual things in this household with people. But he, he, he did write in his diary during this time that he was uh, furious that in London they were allowing the waltz to happen in public uh, because it was just like not okay to do. Um, <laughs> and like I mean, these you, people got to have standards, right? You got to have standards, dude. Yeah. You got to have standards in order to break standards. Um, so anyway, it's a very fascinating moment of all these things happening. Mary's life is a very sad one. So I mentioned she lost a child on the way to that house I imagine she's got a lot of guilt about the Percy's wife that he left pregnant. She ends up killing herself. Um, Claire and Mary both left. Percy's wife did? Yes. So Percy left a pregnant wife to go hang out at the Godwins and seduce a young girl. And she ended up committing suicide. Mary and Claire left a third sister at home who ended up committing suicide. And why all of this, I think, is fascinating is uh, you get Frankenstein. Right. Which so often is like thrown into the spooky life or, you know, we're coming up on Halloween. So there's going to be Frankensteins everywhere. Yeah. And um, I don't think Frankenstein doesn't function like a ghost story, although people do think so. But uh, anyway, I think essentially Frankenstein is her story. It's not about you know, we ought to have been more hospitable to this person. Yeah. It's a tale of like, you know, the other, what happens when someone's othered? It's a story about basically the, you like, I think I said in the book, like cumulative sins Hmm. growing legs and coming after you. And I think she could write that story because she, the same thing's happening in her real life. Um, The thing for her, which I wrote, the thing, that's terrifying is that there is no remission of sins for her. It's just, I've committed this thing and it's like only my blood will do. Um, and that's, that's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That is, and that's a, that's a fascinating take on this because it's not the typical approach that you hear to Frankenstein, right? Oh no, 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 no. Can I, I actually brought it in. No, uh, so this is my favorite. I, I made sure that I put it at the very front of my guide because okay, the things people say about this book, man, it's crazy. Um, Guillermo del Toro, Hellboy, uh, The Shape of Water recently. Mm-hmm. Do you know what we're talking about? Guillermo? Yeah. Guillermo? Yeah. Guillermo? Um, <laughs> he, oh, no, uh, I do. Now that you re-pronounced it, yes. Yeah, now that, yeah, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> if you get letters, send them my way so here's what here's what Guillermo del Toro said about um Frankenstein this is like what got him up in the morning this sort of like I love it so much this is it he said that Frankenstein illuminated the reason I loved monsters my kinship with them and showed me how deep how life-changing a monster parable could be how it could function as art and how it could reach across the distance and time and become a palliative to solitude and pain. So he didn't say much yet, but he continues. He says, uh, every time we read Mary Shelley's work, we try in return to help Mary's creature stay alive. We strive to turn a curse into a blessing. We hope that in some way, somehow our gratitude, our love can reach him like a whispered prayer, like a distant song. 
and we dream that perhaps he can stop amid the frozen tundra and the screaming wind and turn his head and look back at us. And we hope that he might recognize in our eyes his own yearning and that perchance we can walk toward each other and find meager warmth in our embrace. And then if only for a moment, we will not feel alone in the world. I mean, this guy is just like, it's unreal, dude. Right. Bending over backwards to make like the monster, you know, somebody we should like. Of all the people you might reach out to in a tundra in terms of like with yearning eyes, hoping that you can communicate your loneliness to. Right. Frankenstein's monster is not the guy. Yeah. Um, I I would agree. I would agree. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting to me that, um, and, and I'm going to get into really controversial territory, but you're safe because it's my podcast, I guess. So these angry letters right. sent to me. But and um, I live in Moscow, Idaho, where it's, yeah, this it, is just um, this is just a Tuesday, dude. Well, you just narrowed it down there. Um, <laughs> you know where to find him, folks. But um, but people do the same thing with uh, uh, the Genesis account of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Yeah, really. God just destroyed them for their lack of hospitality, right? Um, and then when you when you read comments like that about the monster, it's not that it's this accumulation of monstrous deeds and unconfessed, unrepentant sin. It's no, no, no. We not only do we need to ignore all of that and ignore the monstrous side of it or the attempt to play God that brought him into existence, we need to actually um, almost confess our lack of hospitality to this monster. Um, right. And look back on it. What was it with yearning eyes or something? I don't know. That guy. Yeah, you got that final scene where you know the weird. monster takes off to his burning pile, and and you know, if if Guillermo's king, he's gonna hopefully stop him to let him know I get it. I'm also lonely. Yeah. Um, that's a bit weird. It's a crazy take, dude. It, but to be honest, and you know, I don't know. You could. I feel like you you teach classics. So this is somebody. You know, I saw the opportunity. There was an open moment to write the guide and I took it. So th- I'm not coming from somewhere where I've taught it for years or no. you've probably read it more than me. I mean, is that, w- what are the normal takes you hear? Well, no, it is, it is. That, that is the normal take uh, nowadays where it is um, sort of a, a critique of our lack of community, our, our tendency to exclude and all of that sort of stuff. But, but it's interesting that the, the, the reach of what you just read um, and that take on Frankenstein has become the, has become the norm instead of seeing it as this. And this is the danger of taking something out of historical context, right? Um, So we read the romantics back into it. Yeah. Instead of seeing might've been the failure of the romantics. We, we just romanticize it. And then yeah. read it back in. Now, so here's the interesting thing, though, that one thing that I applaud, I don't know, applaud, but insofar as it goes, I think Mary was wise to it. So there's there's a lot of who wrote Frankenstein, and like a lo- there's, a, there's a lot of people, because it was published anonymously, a lot of people think that Percy wrote it, her husband Percy, or uh, man friend Percy wrote it. But I think because of her being critical, um, so essentially Victor Frankenstein goes to school to essentially solve all cure all diseases, uh, that was right. essentially that he, his mom died, um, from a disease. He wants to go and, and cure the world. And he essentially creates, he rifles through graveyards for a year and creates, you know, his monster. If you look through like Percy's stuff, Percy is like looking for revolution revolutionary utopia left and right. Um, he had, I think it was called Prometheus Unbound, which is a short tale about yeah. that he writes where, you know, Hercules saves Prometheus and uh, it's a new world order. And now that human beings are free from the bonds of like religion and class and other things like that. Now, now we're in perfection. Well, you know, if you take that and you apply it to Frankenstein, the minute, you know, Frankenstein opens those, or the minute his monster opens those yellow eyes, you would think if it were Percy writing, we've done it. We're here. Hmm. But Mary's take is very different. You know, Victor immediately regrets it. Victor thinks I've gone too far. 
I don't think Percy had gone too far categories in any part of his life, much less in a work of fiction. The fact that it's all creepy and essentially a blood feud till the end tells me at least that Mary, while she doesn't have the answer, she, you know, there's no remission of sins. As I said, there's no moment of forgiveness. There's no, you know, there's, there's never that out. You're just dead. Like you, you will pay for, you will pay for the blood you've shed. So anyway, all that to say, I don't think Percy wrote it. And I do think, as you were saying, here's this moment of the romantic ideals. I think at least what's interesting about Frankenstein is, is Mary is critical of those ideals. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, um, and, and before we go any further, I'd just like to say, uh, in, in a brilliant observation from both of us that Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. Yes. But did you see, I almost slipped up several times there. I did. I did see that. I wasn't going to draw attention to it, but I, no, it's fine. Yeah. I don't, I don't (laughs) ever want to embarrass guests. It's, it's, it is embarrassing. Yeah. It's embarrassing. (laughs) Well, I know that you'll cut. I know that you'll cut it. I know that you will make me look uh, as good as I... Right. Either that or I'll include all of this. (laughs) Let's just include all of this. I'm happy to. Because the the honesty, it's endearing. It's a raw honesty. It is. It is. Right. Uh, We'll call it the the, um, weight of fatherhood, deep cuts with Jake Mack. Deep cuts with non-father Jake Mack. Yeah. So now that kind of um, it creates a, a an awkward yet natural uh, progression into my next question, which is um, this is a podcast that's directed mainly at fathers. Yeah, it's the the primary audience. Um, we don't. Uh, I have a dad, so I feel like I'm I'm ready for this question. Okay, okay, that's good. That's good to know. That <laughs> actually was my next question, but having answered that, um, yeah. <laughs> You know what? Why is Frankenstein an important book for dads to read? Now, I can think of all kinds of reasons as a father of four myself. Right, right. Um, but I want to hear your take on that. Why do you, Why do you think this work might be important for dads? You know, that's a good question. I I mean, I've already gone on record as saying I'm skeptical as whether or not this is a book you must read. So I think if a dad is to read it you know, uh, make sure he gets my guide because, you know, you want my take. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, it's a good question. You know, I looked at this question when you sent it over and I was like, man, what would I even say right there? Uh, so in terms of, (laughs) if you get my guide, you can watch the reductio of, of William Godwin as a father who once like when he's put in a position of like, am I going to allow this like essentially grown adult who left his wife, pregnant wife home mm-hmm. to run mm-hmm. away with my daughter. Yeah. Like at the risk of losing him paying my bills, which by the way, Percy, you know, maintained paying those bills. Uh, so Godwin was like, no, thanks. You can take her, I guess. <laughs> uh, so I feel like that's not a great answer, but what, so as a dad and you've read it several times, like what do you have in mind when you think of that question? Not to just wow, you just this. you completely passed the buck, didn't you? Um, you qualified this with you can think of several things, and I, without that qualification, I would have sweat underneath it. But you qualified. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, in in your guide, obviously, you're presenting a model of what not to be as a dad. Yeah. You know, William Godwin is is there. He he certainly qualifies what not to be, but. Um, you know the the humorous take that I have as a as a dad when I read Frankenstein is we all know that feeling of um, you know it, it, seeing our children grow up and they reach that point of like that first real stage of difficulty whenever it is and I don't I don't buy into the whole the terrible twos and whatever because I, I think a lot of this really goes back to how we how we raise and discipline and disciple our children from you know from the very beginning so whenever people use the excuse of oh well it's just the terrible twos or the um the trialing threes or the fearsome fours or the ferocious fives or what and then all of a sudden you know they're coming up with some neat name for you know whatever they are at 18 um right 
Right. Uh, we make all kinds of excuses, but every every parent, every father knows that feeling of uh, I've created a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, one yeah, well, one guy I'm that not, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, I felt like a dad joke was coming, um, and us oh, being absolutely. a dad podcast, you know, I also wondered before I get to my point, um, I feel like Brian, you've reached new levels of dad where like you will screenshot things to post on Instagram. Was that a requirement to like host this dad podcast that so you had to do like super dad social media things? Um, I, <laughs> Did Cersei sit you down and be like, you've got to like, you know, I think start you grilling it, consistently. Yeah. I think you have it in reverse. I think <laughs> it, <laughs> they were just like, no one better for this than this guy. Yeah. I was starting okay, so, things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing I would say too. So I, one guy that I was influenced by, like that I think, um, and that I quote in the book is E. Michael Jones. He wrote a book called the monsters of the id. Okay. And I think he's got horror down. Like I think he horror kind of like plays a kitschy role as we will see coming in the next few weeks or this is past. So yeah. Halloween, you know, everybody's got like spooky stuff. Right. Uh, and, and their lawns and stuff. E. Michael Jones, like, very, does a very good job of just, like, the horror stuff is not, is not to be played with and not necessarily only a demonic way, but it, it just serves a function that most people are not aware of in terms of scapegoating and everything else. Like, there's always going to be, you know, in those classic horror films where the, where the beautiful girl gets stabbed in the shower. Right. You know, she basically gets killed for, there was definitely a sex scene before, and then she's the one that gets killed. So it's like this weird moral uh, scapegoating thing that happens, and most of us treat it as like a trifling thing. It's clear in Shelley's work that horror played that same role. And, you know, Percy, it, it, so E. Michael Jones does a great job of showing that like horror is just not to be trifled with. And it's usually turns out like coming from a really gross place. So if anything, I would just say dads should just not let their kids be around horror. And that would be my one number one recommendation. It's yeah. just like not spooky or cool and normally gross. Right. So yeah. there, there's, there's my serious, there's my, there's my serious take. Yeah. And I, I think that there's, I, I know that we say things like this. It's, it's fun to be scared or it's fun to be frightened, but we're talking about a very different thing between you know, I, I've ridden with every one of my kids so far on their first roller coaster. Right. You know, that's a that's a kind of fear that that's not what we're talking about when it comes to horror, right? Right. When it comes to what 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 does man and what can man inflict upon other people, right? Right. Um, that's a very different question. Um, I think there's a legitimate use of fear. And there's a legitimate use of danger that can be valuable to us in becoming men or becoming women, right? That right. that can be valuable. That can be that can be sort of like that that biblical equivalent of, you know, every temptation is also a trial, right? Every temptation is also an opportunity to obey, right? right? And, and so facing fear can also be an opportunity to conquer, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Totally. I think that that's true. And that's a good distinction to make between horror and fear. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and you know, all the, all of, you know, the little bit that I know of you and your family and like, I know kind of books you guys like to read and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Canon publishes scary books. You know, sure. one of our owners, Nate Wilson writes scary stories in terms yeah. of, yeah, yeah. so we're all fine with that. But in terms of like, in terms of, you know, the uh, largely like the entertainment world of horror movies, Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and a lot of people will like credit Frankenstein. This is sort of the first chilling horror book. Um, yeah. and it is, it does play that role. And, uh, it, it's, it comes from like a dark, kind of a dark, weirdly, oddly, grossly sexual place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the same is true with Dracula is very much yes. even more 100%. Dracula. 100%. Yes. Um, yeah. And in that book that I mentioned, the Monsters of the Id, it's Frankenstein, Dracula, and then a few other of the film stuff. And uh, the whole thing's like weirdly sexual. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I, there I, you go, Dad. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a real 
connection there. And so for, for dads, I think for the practical application of this, it's, it is to distinguish between horror and fear or horror and danger. There's a legitimate use for one, maybe not the other. Um, but I think that too, if your take on Frankenstein is correct, and I, I tend to agree with you for the record, um, that I do think that there's a representation going on here of sort of this accumulation of unconfessed sin. There is no remission of sin, and it's just sort of this this building monster to where um, it sort of takes over. It takes on a life of its own, which, by the right. way, if you read The Great Divorce, I mean, if you read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, he pictures that exact same scenario, right? That, right. that the idea of right. sin growing and and accumulating power and eventually taking over and controlling. Um, it's, Which uh, yeah. Lewis does such an awesome job too, of showing how largely at the end of the day, it's not like these momentous sins or like, or, uh, you know, giant sins. It's like very petty human stuff. Right. The great divorce is like the best book. And yeah. I mean, like Lewis is awesome at it in general, but just a, a total. And now of course I'm forgetting the word, but it's just like, it is a masterclass in human beings. It is. It is. Yeah. So I, I, I would say that the takeaway for dads is to encourage your kids and hopefully your liturgies teach you this in, in church, that it's reinforcing this, um, to keep short accounts with God, right? Yes. And yeah, 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 yeah. Confess your sins, confess your sins, repent of your sins. Um, and um, it's where, you, you know, you're not, you're not facing this, this monster that takes on a life of its own, but rather you're, you're, um, keeping short accounts and, um, that even just the idea of forgiveness. I mean, like if that, that should be read afresh after something like Frankenstein, where, um, I honestly think Mary had no clue what to do. Right. Yeah. Like, it's not just that she wanted to write a scary story. Like the scary thing for her is like, she could just confess it to the whole world. Right. There's, there's nothing that she could do. And I don't know if are we, if we're circling the, if we're circling the plane here, one thing that I wanted to finish on in terms of like where she yeah, was, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> this is not funny, but in 1819, another of Mary's children died. And, uh, this is sort of what her, one of her more recent biographers, Miranda Seymour notes in her biography, which again, she's like way pro Mary Shelley thinks she was a rock star and would hate my take, I think. But this is what she writes in the biography. In the summer of 1819, she could think of nothing but her loss. This is in reference to the recent child's death. She had been a mother three times. Each time, the child had been snatched from her. Oh, 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 how overwhelming you are, Shelley had written, quoting Aeschylus at the, end of her, at the end of her first journal. What sin, she wondered, could have merited such a relentless punishment? The old-fashioned concept of divine retribution was not one Mary had learned either from Godwin or uh, or her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. She began, nevertheless, to wonder if Harriet Shelley's death, this was the one, her sister that committed suicide when she left her, lay at her door and if this was the penalty that was exacted. The thought would linger and haunt her. So this is real life stuff for her and in terms of uh, not being able to get away, you know, you've done that thing and now, you know, deaths for her, you know, at that time, it was 1819. She'd already lost three kids, her sister. And anyway, so like I said, a real, real deal for her. And like, it wasn't a trite thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a very sobering take on it a very and it, and it gives such context again you know the story the frankenstein was published in 1818 this is a, a year later yep yep wow wow that's very yeah, um well you know this is a it, it it's a sobering thought and it's a sober um podcast really a sober episode when we think of it we put all this together some really serious stuff um i i do want to to thank you for, you know, playing a part in, in addressing all these issues in your, your guide to Frankenstein, because I think that this is a take that's much needed um, because it helps kind of cut through when we think about the romantics. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess naturally we, we romanticize it, right? We look at it as yeah, right. emotion and freedom and so on. 
but there's a lot of there's a lot of bondage and a lot of uh, real sadness, deep sadness that came along with it, um, and it's something that we need to keep in mind. Um, but let me I want to end with an opportunity. There's no there's no good way to kind of transition into this. <laughs> I know I totally killed the episode, dude. I'm sorry about that, but you know. All right, so hey, Jake, give us a commercial. <laughs> but no, there there yeah. are um, are there any big projects or surprises coming up from Canon Press that you want everyone to know about? Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear what's coming up. Yeah, dude. So Canon's Canon's rocking right now, man. We so this is coming out in November. So we're right in the middle of no quarter of November. You've already seen the awesome video. So we've announced we are doing for all of our audiobooks, all of our audio content which we have for like the several decades, you know, all the conferences that have happened in Moscow or traveling, all of that stuff sits on our site. And it's always been hard to deliver that to uh, customers. So what we did was we made an app. So you can subscribe to the Canon Press app, which essentially functions like uh, the Canon's Audible app per per se. So um, it will be free for the rest of the month. And then December, you will be, you know, you can choose to, to pay a subscription fee or not. Um, so it'll house all of our audio products, which we're super excited about because there's a ton of phenomenal, phenomenal stuff that's, that's, that we have on the website that, like I said, it's just kind of tough to offer to customers. Yeah. But additionally, uh, we talked about Man Rampant at the beginning. It will have Man Rampant on it. So that's the new home of Man Rampant um, since it doesn't look like Amazon is eager to have eager to keep us, which is totally fine. And the good news is for internationals, and that includes Canadians who have been, you know, uh, wailing in the comments in Canadian that uh, they couldn't watch Man Rampant, which again we feel bad about. But uh, now it's an internationally readily available thing. So if you're interested, I mentioned too. By the way, E. Michael Jones, I mentioned uh, his book Monsters of- Monsters of the Id. Uh, he's actually a guest. So. Oh, wow. Okay. He's not talking about horror uh, as much as I would have loved that, but uh, I think he talked about his new book. So for season two, uh, and that should be rolling out slowly, like the second season through November. So uh, we've got all kinds of stuff going on, man. We would love for anybody to come check it out. And I assume we're Cersei folks are kind of in the same world. So some might be privy, but if, if you're not, please come hang out and right. trying to think what else, man. Sales are coming. I don't remember which week in November sales are coming, but you can get my guide and Brian's guides 20% off. And then also January one, my new guide on Gatsby will be ready. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So, so so keep an eye out for all these things and go look at it's uh, Canon press, C A N O N press dot press. Um, yeah, very good. That's Uh, it, man. Wonderful. Jake, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Dude, of course. Your insight on Frankenstein and, and everything else. Thank you for what you guys are doing. Uh, yeah, good. dude. Thank you. Uh, by the way, I know it was tough. We didn't really get to see COVID. Didn't really see you on the road this year. What's up? I know. I know. The, the Cersei folks, we, we miss seeing everybody in person. Um, and hopefully, hopefully this will be a one-time deal and we'll, we'll see everyone else really soon. Well, thank you again to Jake McAtee for joining me on this episode of The Weight of Fatherhood. Uh, this is a great discussion of the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Um, and, and more than that, a discussion of Mary Shelley herself and her life and how she brought in uh, her previous experiences and struggles into that story is that very often uh, we miss even people who write commentary or, or analysis of Frankenstein seem to miss this. I'm in agreement with Jake's take on Frankenstein. I think it's very insightful. And that's really what I want to leave us with today as we kind of tie this episode together and apply it to our lives as dads. Um, The life of Mary Shelley, I guess, could be seen as a sort of cautionary tale, the same way Ren and some of the others in the Romantic period should be seen as cautionary tales as well. When, When sin goes unchecked, it builds. And so we really need to, as Charles Spurgeon said, uh, keep short accounts with God. We need to confess our sins regularly. We need to be honest about our sins. We need to be honest about our struggles. Uh, you may remember King David, who I think it's fair to say was a, a better man than me and probably a better man than you know most listening, um, if not all of us. 
And yet at one point in his life, one sin became another sin, which became another. And it snowballed into a situation that David probably never would have imagined he would find himself in. He went from being somewhat derelict in his duty. He was supposed to lead his army off to war. It was that time of the year when the kings were supposed to lead their their men into war. And yet David stayed home. And that small, seemingly small, comparatively small area of disobedience and neglect in his life led to lustful thoughts, led to adultery, which then led to a cover-up that even included uh, murder. And in Psalm 51, we find David's psalm of repentance, his prayer of repentance to the Lord. And so if you're looking for some kind of homework or a way to think through the the topic that we've talked about today with um, with Frankenstein and the life of Mary Shelley, I'd encourage you to go back and read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written to the choir master, it says, the subtitle. It was a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, this after he had committed adultery. And it's David's prayer of confession to the Lord. And it's a great model of how we need to approach our sin and keeping short accounts with God. And keep in mind, this is what we need to model for our children as well. Be honest about your own sin. Be honest when, when you do wrong. Confess it. Your children see you. Um, they see you do something that, that you shouldn't, uh, or you're, you respond in a way you shouldn't, or you're uh, cultivating habits that you shouldn't. Be honest. They see it. And in doing so, you're modeling the gospel to them. You're modeling confession of sin, offering forgiveness, and seeking forgiveness and making it right. And so keep all of this in mind. Go back and read Psalm 51. Get Jake McAtee's guide to Frankenstein as well. Thanks again so much for joining me. We'll catch you next time. This is Brian Phillips for The Way to Father. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.